spring has sprung, everybody, and thank you for joining us on this next episode of the UDOT Cottonwood Canyons podcast series. I am Matt Allred, UDOT's internal communications manager, and with me, I couldn't do the job without her, is Lisa Miller from UDOT's traffic management division. Hi, Lisa. Hello, Matt. I'm so excited that spring is here. It's nice. I'm, I'm looking out my window. Skies are blue. Snow is still on the mountains. It's a beautiful spring day in the high desert. So love it. We have that crisp spring air. You don't know if it's going to be 70 the next day or 30, but I'm loving it. Good. Well, we are, we're happy that it's here. A little bummed that ski season is coming to a close, but we're going to keep working on this uh, on the canyons and, and make sure it, it, it's what it needs to be. So, hey, so episode four, Lisa, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm going to go on a uh, we're going to recap what we've done over the last couple episodes and just let me know if I forget something. So we started, uh, episode one was on the EIS, which is the environment environmental impact statement for the Cottonwood Canyons. Uh, we then talked about bus route alternatives, different alternatives for the bus. And then on episode three, this was kind of exciting. We talked about a gondola and what the gondola alternatives look like. And today we are going to be covering the cog rail. So did I, I think I got it right. Did I miss anything? I believe you're correct. And I learned something new on every single one. So I'm hopeful that everybody tuned into episodes one through three. Yep. And if you didn't go back and look at them, we, I think we did a great job. So go back, look at them, listen to them and uh, get involved. So welcome back, Josh Van Jura and Terry Warner with the little Cottonwood Canyon EIS project team. Uh, they're here to help us just continue to understand some of the strategies the project team is looking at and really to help manage traffic and encourage transit use uh, for all of these alternatives. Uh, and today we're going to discuss the Cograil alternative. So welcome, Josh and Terry. Well, thanks, Matt. And hopefully my audio's sounding okay. I, uh, I got a COVID puppy a couple of weeks ago and he found my AirPods. And so, yes, they now have some extra tooth marks in them. So hopefully you can hear me clearly. Hi, Matt. Lisa, Terry Warner here. Thanks for having me back. We're glad you're here, Terry. Now, Terry, I can hear you totally fine. I hope a puppy did not eat your headphones. No, my old boy is pretty well behaved. Thanks. Good. Well, and welcome, Josh. Thanks for being here, even though uh, you had the puppy situation. But I've seen a picture on social media and that puppy's pretty cute. So uh, may- maybe forgive forgive him for chewing on your headphones. But let's jump right in. What's a cog rail? Uh, and how is this different than a normal train? So a cog rail differs from a conventional light rail train in that it has a third rack rail between the two traditional tracks. And then the train vehicle itself has a cog wheel or a pinion that engages with this rack system to allow the train to ascend or more importantly, descend steep, steep grades. But in all honesty, from the outside, I don't think the normal user would be able to tell the difference between a cog rail vehicle and something you might see on the university line. Two cog rail systems that you might be familiar with, um, one is the Mount Washington cog rail system in New Hampshire, which was my first introduction to cog rail, having grown up in that area. And then there's another one in Pikes Peak in Colorado, if you're familiar with that one. So I just thought I'd share that, as I'm sure many of the listeners are familiar with one of those two systems. So Josh, if we're going to, we're talking about this as an alternative, 
buses, gondolas, now the cog rail. Tell us about uh, about this alternative. Sure. So the cog rail has the same starting point as Gondola B. So that has the train station on the Lakai property, you know, roughly three quarters of a mile north northwest of the mountain or the mouth of the canyon. And this alternative would have the same 1500 stall parking structure that you would enter from North Little Cottonwood Road. And it also has the two mobility hubs at the gravel pit in 94 South and Highland. So very similar to the gondola alternative. The rail alignment will primarily be on the north slash east side of Little Cottonwood. And if you want to look at the alignment of this or any of the alternatives, really, you can go to our website and there's an interactive map that'll let you review those alignments. And under this alternative, the train would provide 15-minute service. And this would be direct-to-resort service, similar to the buses or the gondola. So no whistle stops at trailheads. Total travel time for the cog rail is 55 or 59 minutes to Alta, depending on where you park. So it's a little bit longer if you park at one of those satellite mobility hubs versus at the Lakai Bay Station. And that includes 12 minutes to park, grab your gear, walk to the bus or over to the train station, and then total time on the train is 27 minutes up to Snowbird, and then another 10 minutes if you want to continue on to Alta. Capital cost-wise, the train alone is estimated at $630 million, and it has a winter operations and maintenance cost of $5.7 million. And this O&M cost includes the cost to operate the train and the buses for the people that park at the remote parking hubs. So just a reminder, the project website is littlecottonwoodeis.u.utah.gov. Again, it's littlecottonwoodeis.u.utah.gov. So Terry, tell us what this alternative is all about. How's it gonna function? Just really give us some details here. Sure, yeah. I wanted to talk uh, first just about a few more specific aspects of the, the cog rail technology that Joss mentioned, and then we'll get into you know everything that makes up the cog rail alternative. So as Josh mentioned, there'll be stops at this Lakai base train station um, and stations at Snowboard and Alta. So we're evaluating a diesel electric propelled cog rail vehicle. So with that diesel electric train, um, it would not need that overhead electrical system. That's typical of the, you know, the existing tracks line um, to supply power to the electric motors. So if you're curious, that wire is called a cantonary and the, the arm that is typically on top of the rail car vehicles is called a, a pantograph. So that, that wouldn't be needed with this specific cog rail technology. Um, but that diesel motor would provide power to the electric motors that are in each vehicle. And those motors sits on the um, vehicle trucks or what's called bogies to use some industry jargon. Um, the travel times that Josh mentioned are based on travel speeds, which are based on, you know, track curvature and also, uh, you know, the safe descent speed that Josh mentioned is the main reason to engage the cogwheel. 
Um, the line is mostly double tracked. So one set of tracks to travel up canyon, another one for down canyon. And this is important because it allows trains to pass anywhere along the line and not just at stations or in, uh, you know, specific siding areas with a with some passing track. That's important because that really helps us uh, ensure that that design frequency or level of service of uh, 15 minutes between each train is, is maintained. Um, to accommodate our design capacity, we calculated the need for about a, a three-vehicle train. And a, a three-vehicle train would accommodate about 250 people in each train. And that uh, would give them ample room to to sit down and you know hold their skis, snowboard, and the rest of their gear. So at four trains per hour, or over 15 minutes, that's what equates to our 1,000 people per hour demand or, or capacity that's needed to reduce uh, traffic congestion in the canyon. Well, Terry, you threw some pretty big words at us there. Catenary, pantograph, bogeys. It sounds like we're doing geometry on a golf course or something, but Josh, um, Josh, what's up with that thousand people per hour capacity? Is that is that the capacity for the cog rail, or could it handle more? The train could move more people per hour, and we could do this either by adding more cars per train set or increasing the frequency of the service. So instead of our fifteen minute services we have it designed today, maybe reducing that down to a ten minute service or five minute service. The easier of these two options would simply be add more cars to each train. So currently we have three cars every 15 minutes to carry those 250 people per train. But we could simply add a fourth or a fifth car to this train set. And the only change would be that we'd need to make the platforms longer at each of the stations. The second way is a little more complicated. And that's to increase the frequency of the service, like I said, maybe down to 10 or 5 minutes. But when you add more trains to the track, you need to analyze where those passing zones are. And honestly, that's not something we've analyzed at this point and would require additional engineering to make sure that the service could perform with the track as it's designed. Also, I think it's important to note that Increasing the service either with the cog rail or the gondola would require an additional environmental document to be completed to analyze what the impacts on the canyon are from this increased visitation associated with the service beyond what we've designed in our document. I'm with you, Josh. That travel time reliability is huge. Um, Terry, what about costs for the cog rail? Now, how did you develop the costs and did you use the same methodology as other methods? Yeah, we did. Um, so UDOT prepared an independent, independent cost estimate. You know, we first prepared a preliminary engineering design by some uh, track design professionals, you know, using industry standard for track curves. Sorry, Lisa, I'm gonna drop more jargon. <laughs> also that track design, you know, had industry standard tangent lengths and spiral transition just to make sure that it was an enjoyable ride. Um, but we use those industry standards for, you know, stations, switches, turnouts, those sorts of things. And we designed the, the uh, cog rail alignment to hug the road as tightly as possible. But we also wanted to maintain 
you know, a little bit higher design speed. So the design does diverge from the road slightly in some locations, just so we can maintain speed, maintain those design speeds and travel times. It's important to note that the road and the cog rail really have completely different design criteria. And it's very difficult to parallel the road exactly through all segments of the corridor. But we did our best to, you know, hug the road, yet maintain uh, design curves that would allow us some reasonable travel speeds. So this preliminary design was then used to generate some construction quantities, like the cubic yards of excavation, the amount of track ballast, lengths of steel track, those sorts of things. And then we applied um, some unit costs based on our experience with similar projects throughout the country. And then we added some contingencies to the bottom line. Contingencies of about 20% just to account for you know, uncertainties and unknowns in the construction quantities. And that consistent uh, that contingency was consistently applied across all alternatives. And you'd use that same general methodology to estimate the cost of all alternatives. So building on that thought, um, I wanted to make sure everybody was clear that UDOT's cost estimate include all components that make up the cog rail alternative. So in addition to the cog rail itself, you know, the cog rail's components, the track, the switches, the stations, UDOT estimated the cost for the mobility hubs. We estimated the cost for improvements to North Little Cottonwood Canyon Road that's needed to access that mobility hub. And we also estimated the cost of the mobility hubs uh, in more remote locations, so at 9400 South and Highland, and at the gravel pit, as well as the cost to purchase and operate buses from those more remote mobility hubs. So those, in addition to the cost for widening Wasatch Boulevard, which would be the same for alternatives, um, gets us to a total cost of about $1.1 billion for this alternative. So not chump change by any means. Wait, Terry, hold on. So you said billion with a B. Uh, earlier, Josh mentioned that the cog rail would only cost $630 million. And now you're talking a billion dollars. Why? What is, what's that about? Yeah, again, you got took into account all of the project components that together made up that alternative that we're going to evaluate in the EIS. So yes, about $630 million for the cog rail, and that includes a rail maintenance facility. Um, and why we need that is that with a standalone rail system, or one that just serves the canyon, we need a standalone repair and maintenance facility because if the rail line does not connect to UTA's existing system, we could not utilize their existing operations and maintenance facilities. So add on about 250 million for snowsheds, about 62 million for widening Wasatch Boulevard, about 52 million for mobility hubs, another 27 million for buses, you know, and a few other items, um, you know, the costs are adding up pretty quickly. So those were the main things that contributed to that one point, uh, one essentially billion dollar cost estimate. Uh, one other thing I wanted to add about uh, when Josh quoted his operational cost earlier, we're still trying to figure out the exact snow removal procedures 
for the cog rail. Um, there would be some additional costs to winter maintenance in the canyon to account for you know the additional effort and time associated with removing snow from the tracks. We allocated about 600,000 to account for that additional effort for the cog rail alternative. Good info. Yeah, that that does add up fast. And Terry, I will totally allow all the jargon that you're throwing at us. You know why? Because Josh did not abbreviate O&M for the first time, and I'm so proud of him. So thanks, Josh, for, <laughs> for doing that. Um, let me throw a question back to you, Josh. Now, we didn't see it as part of the original alternatives released last summer. Was a rail alternative even considered at first? I guess, why now? So a cog rail was considered in the report that was released last summer. We actually looked at five different versions of the cog rail alignment. We had one that left from the mouth, one that left from the gravel pit, one that left from 9400 south, and then one that left the Midvale track station and one that left historic Sandy station. So we actually analyzed five different versions. Um, the Cograil did pass the level one screening at this time, but it didn't pass the level two screening because of the large number of home acquisitions with connecting it at historic Sandy station, which was the alternative that we had proceeded with. So those home acquisitions, I think there was 48 historic homes along 9400 South that were anticipated to be impacted. But during the comment period from that June 8th report, we got a number of comments that a base station at Lakai should be considered for a true apples to apples comparison. And also the consideration about potentially single tracking that section that goes from the grit mill um, up through gate buttress and Lisa Falls to make sure that those trailheads weren't impacted. So by making these changes, to that original alternative based on the public comment we got. That's how the level two screening was passed and how it became an alternative in the November addendum. Great. Now you mentioned a little bit about this, but how does this cog rail option differ from the one originally evaluated by that EIS? So I'll go into a little bit more detail. Um, good question. I tend to talk fast and forget some of these details. So thanks for the follow-up. So our primary alternative out of those five was the one that connected to the track station at historic Sandy station and continued up through the town of Alta. And that had a estimated cost of about 1.7 billion. So give or take $600 million more than the alternative that we're now talking about. So a good bit more expensive. Um, again, those 48 historic home impacts were a big deal. And so that's why we really moved it to look, Lakai Station, but also those wreck and historic property impacts. So main changes, changing the starting point. Terry mentioned that there'd be no overhead cantonary, and we went with diesel electric locomotives. But also this alternative now includes less snow sheds because there's no cantonary to protect. And there's just less infrastructure to support the electric, uh, electrification. So substations, et cetera. And then again, reducing it to single track through those rec areas, grit mill, gate buttress, and Lisa Falls. So that's the mm -hmm. main changes from what we looked at originally to what we're proposing today. 
So could this new alignment connect into existing UTA rail system uh, in the future? So in the NEPA process, you need to analyze the ultimate solution that's being anticipated. We can't just analyze a starter system that has fewer ultimate impacts to the natural and built environment. And honestly, that's just disingenuous to the public to say, oh, well, this doesn't have that many impacts, knowing that really you want to build something else down the road later that has much more impacts. So again, you need to look at that ultimate solution. And that's especially true here because we know there's more impacts when we connect down to 94th. So for the 2050 solution that's identified in the EIS, the alignment doesn't need to actually extend down to the existing UTA light rail system. We feel it has enough capacity as designed. So Terry, we talked about this a little with the gondola alternative. It seems like we need more snowsheds for this cog rail. Why? There are you know five or six main avalanche paths in the canyon that flow often, you know, yearly. And when they do flow through, you know, natural or artificial means, the avalanches tend to reach the road. So yeah, for the gondola alternative, we talked about that a little bit um, in the mid canyon segment or the area around Tanner's flat. There are three main avalanche paths that really result in most of the extended canyon closure times. And these are the white pine chutes, white pine and little pine avalanche paths. So we're proposing snow sheds to cover both the cog rail line and the road through this segment of the canyon. So with the cog rail line on the north side of the road, you know, there's really no way to separate those two snowsheds. So we're proposing one pretty wide snowshed through those main paths. And UDOT avalanche control uh, folks believe that snowsheds in those three paths would reduce closure times by up to 80%, 75 to 80%. So those are uh, three main critical paths that we need to protect, not only the road, but also the cog rail line to run. Uh, maintain its reliability. In the upper canyon segment or closer to the resorts, there are three or four main avalanche paths up there that, that again, flow often. And when they do, avalanches tend to, to reach the road. And those are the Superior, Little Superior, and Hellgate paths right there between Snowbird and Alta. The difference is for the upper canyon avalanche paths, the SR-210 bypass road is available for cars to go around that segment of road. However, we need snowsheds to cover the cog rail in that segment to maintain the same reliability of the cog rail. And Terry, did UDOT look at other alignments to avoid the need for these snowsheds? Yes, Matt, we did. It's a, you know, it's a, a critically important design and safety consideration. So UDOT did look for rail alignments that could avoid or reduce the need for snowsheds. So in that mid canyon segment, we looked at an alignment that drops south of the road into the valley along the creek. Um, but this area is challenging and that has the creek, it's a riparian zone which is a protected zone in the forest plan. 
Um, the area also has uh, specially designated wilderness areas. And so the Forest Service and Salt Lake City Department, Department of Public Utilities, excuse me, um, who, who manages the watershed and owns the majority of water rights in Little Cottonwood Canyon, uh, both those parties objected to alignment that was off of the main transportation corridor in the canyon. In addition, that more southern alignment would impact the, the Tanners campground. And this campground is what we call a 4F recreational resources. And what that basically means is that if there's an alternative that avoids it, we have to choose that alignment. So because there is an alignment along the roadway, given that 4F resource, uh, UDOT has to select that. Uh, in the upper segments of the canyon, in order to avoid those avalanche paths, UDOT looked at an alignment proposed by a, a, a rail advocate that diverged from the roadway uh, near Snowbird Entry 3. This alignment ran through Snowbird's Chickadee Ski Run to a train station located just south of the Cliff Lodge. And then from there, um, we looked at a, a, a single track alignment that follows the bypass road to another station at Alta. Um, we looked at single track because that bypass road is so narrow that it would be almost impossible to do, uh, do double track through that segment. So we looked at single track, but that alignment had its challenges. You know, it impacted the uh, historic nature of the Cliff Lodge, it impacted a large part of the uh, Peruvian Lodge's parking area, as well as the entrance to the, the Alta Lodge. And with only single track and the slow design curves needed to follow the bypass road closely or to you know closely parallel the bypass road, it was really difficult to maintain those desired 15-minute uh, train frequencies. So if there were ever the slightest delay, that would have just a cascading effect to the schedule along the entire alignment. So really alignments that are off of the main SR210 corridor are just not, not feasible routes. Right now, Terry, we talked about this in a previous episode, but you know, there's other users in the canyon that aren't always headed to the resorts. And of course, a lot of folks are certainly headed to the resorts, but how will the Cograil impact other recreation access in the canyon? Yeah, the, the rail line is designed with, with formal crossings to facilitate safe access and egress from uh, reconstructed trailhead parking lots that are along the north side of the road. Now, these are signalized crossings with gates, warning lights, and bells, you know, to block the entrance when a, a train's about to pass. And as Josh mentioned, you know, there will be no whistle stops associated with this alignment. It's just not, a, not safe to have a train stop in close proximity to cars and pedestrians. So we'll provide access to those trailheads with the Cogra alternative. And UDOT is also working with the Forest Service to designate additional formal pedestrian crossings if they are needed to allow hikers and backcountry skiers access to certain side canyons. 
um, if there's not already a designated trailhead parking. So we'll work out with the Forest Service where those other hotspots might be and then decide together whether to put a formal crossing in those locations. Josh, we talked about this in depth in episode two, uh, really how tolling would be part of the bus alternative and the gondola options. Would tolling apply to this one as well? So will, Matt. Tolling or single occupancy vehicle restrictions are applicable to all of the primary alternatives. And I just want to make that clear. Also, the same will go with the subsidized fare in winter for all of the options that there would be a reduced fare, again, for all of these five alternatives. But I think it's important to note that the occupancy restrictions or the tolling wouldn't go into effect until the preferred alternative is in operation. So buses are running, gondolas running, cog rails running, whatever's ultimately selected. It just seems unfair to begin the tolling before that alternate mode of transportation is in place. So, and again, one last thing, this would, the tolling or occupancy restriction is only going to apply to the upper canyon where that the primary alternative could deliver people as an alternate mode. So it would not apply to those lower canyon trailheads like Lisa Falls or White Pine. And I'm just going to put in a plug for episode two. Again, we really went into depth with the tolling there. So if you need a recap, jump back to episode two, listen to it again. Um, hey, and I, I hope everybody's learning as much about what goes on into an effective or what goes into an effective EIS uh, as I am. I'm, I'm really learning a lot here. Um, and really, the overall goal here is just to make the canyon safer. We want people to use the canyons. We want them to ski on the snow. We want them to be up there and really enjoy those canyons. So and, and as we're wrapping up here, I wanted to thank Josh and Terry for being on with us today. Lisa, thank you again for being my awesome co-host. We've got some beautiful countryside here, Matt. And one more word that I learned today was repair, riparian, the uh, forest uh, service land that was protected. So great stuff. Join us on the next episode where we're going to talk more about the snowsheds, uh, the widening of Wasatch Boulevard, and a whole bevy of other things to wrap up the conversation on this EIS. In fact, I think we're going to just throw in the kitchen sink on this episode. So make sure you join us. And uh, until then, buckle up, put your phones down, uh, be safe out there, everybody. See ya. Okay, hold on. What does <laughs> what does what what does sub alternatives mean here? Let's uh, underwater like navigation. Obviously, yeah. Like I yeah. mean, obviously, we're just gonna go deep in that creek there. <laughs>